0: So super excited about the founders that we have today joining us. We're gonna be talking about a remarkable story, Q Mixers, how everything happened, how they got together, how they met in summer camp, uh, and obviously around the story of of this company that they've built, you know, and they've been at it for quite a bit of time. So I think that a lot of successes, a lot of lessons learned along the way, and it's gonna be quite inspiring. So I guess, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jordan Silbert and Ben Carlin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's start with Jordan. So Jordan, originally born and raised in the Upper West Side. So how was life growing up there? Great.
1: Like, life is what you know. New York City was very different in the 70s and 80s than it is today. I would say both are great, but uh, it was a little rougher around the edges back then and i'm still very much a you know city kid like i do not like driving i don't particularly take cars very seriously i like having people around me i like doing stuff so still very much a new yorker
0: you know it's interesting here because in your journey being in the one of the most incredible cities in the world you know after college you know you went to brown then you moved to california i mean why why did you go to california
1: because my mother convinced me
0: that uh, I tricked uh,
1: this great college into accepting me, and I didn't go abroad junior year. So I graduated, and uh, I wanted to do something different. Uh, so I actually went out to Sonoma County, uh, California, and uh, by day worked doing economic development for the county, and at night uh, lived in a little cab in the woods with no indoor shower uh, next door to this guy's house who was a real... Character. He had big parties where he roasted goats. Uh, he made his own wine, uh, grew his own pot. Yeah, we just had a good old time. So I just wanted to get really far away from New York City and try something very different.
0: But obviously, this was your first uh, contact as well with with startups and you being able to see, you know, how you know really the birth of a company would happen, how they would scale, and and being part of that ecosystem of creativity. So what do you think? You know, like uh, you got you got from that experience.
1: So I guess there's two parts of California. First, I did this economic development for the county of Sonoma. Then I went down to San Francisco and worked for a couple of startups, one of which went public. The other one got bought by Microsoft. So I think there's some there, but I have to admit one of the most influential things was making wine with this guy, Sean. You know, I you will get to it later, but I had this idea for a better tonic water. And uh, the fact that I knew Sean made wine that was really good. And I was like, that Yahoo can make good wine. I can make some good tonic wine. Um, You know, with him, we went up to this kind of uh, relatively abandoned uh, vineyard up in Cloverdale in kind of northern Sonoma County and uh, picked like basically wild grapes, crushed them, barreled them, didn't put any, you know, finishing chemicals uh, at all, then let it sit for a year and then make the wine that was actually pretty good. And the fact that he could do that meant that when I had this kind of, drunken revelation that the world needed a better tonic water, uh, I actually had confidence that I could make it. And I think that was really helpful. Obviously being in San Francisco during the go-go days, you saw a lot of money being spent both for good and for bad. And I think that has informed our approach to, you know, our spending at this organization that we really want to be careful, uh, and watch every single penny and not kind of waste things on, uh, you know, ice, ice luges uh, with, for vo- drinking vodka out of because it impresses people, uh, really made sure that every money, every dollar we spend is a real investment in the business.
0: And in your case, 9-11 hit. And obviously, you know, you had to come back here to New York City. You encountered probably all the uncertainty, all the craziness during those difficult times for everyone. But, you know, I guess, uh, you know, this was your your time to come back to the to the big city. So how was that for you? Yeah, I was actually visiting my parents on September 11th in the city. And basically I didn't feel
1: comfortable flying back on the 14th or the 14th was canceled. Didn't feel comfortable flying back on the 21st. And by the time I did fly back in you know, late September, I decided that I had to come back and help. Uh, so basically packed up my stuff, drove back. And by Thanksgiving was working for this thing called the Alliance for Downtown New York, which was uh, the business improvement district for the area, basically below Chamber Street in Manhattan. And uh, because it was this kind of, established organization ended up being a real flow through for all the dollars that were being spent. And my job eventually became coming up with ideas and getting them funded and implemented uh, that would revitalize the either residential or business community in the area below Chamber Street. And it was awesome uh, for three years. And then it got pretty political towards the
0: end. Yeah. And then after, obviously, you ended up in business school uh, and you know, it's it's amazing how you know. I guess you know, in your case, you you've had that idea, uh, you know, like uh, really on the back burner. I guess with business school, I mean, seeing what happened on in 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 California and San Francisco, the go go of startups, as you were alluding to. I guess now here with business school, perhaps it gave you that framework as to how to think, perhaps you know, in the future about you know bringing bringing something to life, which you know eventually you know turned out to be Q mixers, but but I guess, you know, would you say that maybe business school gave you a little bit more of a framework, you know, to really understand how to really get something done on the business side? No. Okay. <laughs> but maybe the <laughs> network. I mean, would you say that maybe the, the network? I had
1: a great time at business school.
0: Yeah, the academics,
1: it was just a bunch of math homework. Um Some of the Barry. But that's what I was going to get to. One of my professors or one of the professors at at Yale Business School was Barry Nailbuff, who had started Honest Tea. So, um after I came back for my summer internship, uh, you know, the summer between first and second year, uh, I realized I wanted to like do stuff. The reason I was went to business school was to kind of equip me to do stuff. Um and I I had this I had had this idea for tonic water company before I went. And so I came back uh after my uh first after my summer I went into Barry's office, you know, I'm Jordan. Uh, I want to start this uh spectacular tonic water company. Uh, can I do a, um, an independent study with you? And he said, sure. Uh, however, you have one assignment. I was like, "What? What? what's the assignment? He says, I don't need to have some 500 page business um, plan. Like I know every single store in America, retailers in America sells tonic water. Mark is plenty big. What I need you to figure out is how to make the thing. but on ST, we had this like Bottle of uh, iced tea that they sold to some Whole Foods division, and the media so went so well that they were asked to sell a uh, a a truckload of product. And he's like, "But we couldn't make it. So you got a year. You got to figure out how to make the thing. You got to source glass. You got to find a bottling plant. All that." So I basically did that for a semester of business school. Um, So in that regard, it was terrific in terms of the the microeconomics or the macroeconomic foundation for me understanding uh, kind of the world. Yes and no. No,
0: no than yes. And then obviously in your case, you know, then, you know, a little bit of sales and marketing and then, you know, it got to the idea, to the company that we're going to be talking about today. So I guess let's pause it right there. And now let's go to Ben. So Ben, born in Boston. So uh, obviously there you went to summer camps and and Jordan didn't want to disclose the fact that you guys met in summer camp, where you were the athletic and he was the nerdy. So
2: yeah, he didn't want to disclose. That. Tell us about growing yeah. up, you know, around that area.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so uh, I grew up in Boston, and um, yeah, Jordan and I have known each other since we were nine years old. went to summer camp together in Maine, and then went to college together at, at Brown in Providence. So, and I'd always been really interested in business since I was a kid. I had a vending machine business. I had uh, M&M and gum vending machines at a few different places in Boston by the time I went off to college. After college, I did uh, management consulting, which I I learned a bunch of stuff. I learned about how to approach real-world problems from an analytical and data-driven perspective. But I also, it was far too, um, whatever the opposite of tangible is. And so I only did that for two years. I decided to do the, the most opposite thing that I could think of after that, um, and I moved to Maine and I went to Carpentry school, and I was a, a carpenter for a couple of years um, before I eventually went to business school.
0: That's amazing, you know but one, one of the things that that I find very unique here you know on your background too is that many of the entrepreneurs that i that I speak with that you know end up being very successful are those that have the background of being consultants, I guess maybe to a certain yeah. degree because they help you on really understanding how you grab. A really big problem, and then you break it down into very small problems. So I guess you know what what kind of background did I give you to to really tackle friend, uh, problems with a really interesting framework?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't love my time in consulting, but the truth is, I did learn how to look at the real world and all of its messiness and and break it into discrete pieces, and how to get information um, and how to be data driven about decisions. Um, and those were, I think, important foundational skills.
0: And and both of you guys, you know, had that experience there in California, because, I mean, you did your MBA at Stanford, Ben. So I'm yep. sure that, you know, many of the uh, classmates that that you went to class with, you know, they went on and started great companies and you were able to have that exposure too. But instead yep. of launching your own business, you went into, you know, more of the corporate side. Why did you do that?
2: Yeah. Although I wouldn't call we'll talk about it, I wouldn't call Bumble and Bumble where I went corporate. It okay. was kind of insane culturally. So I started when I was at business school, actually my summer internship, I worked for a a startup that had, I was the fourth person there in New York City. Um there's an educational technology startup company called Redia. Um and I worked there during my summer and I loved it. And I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do early stage startups. And I continued working for this company throughout my second year of business school. And my intent was to work full time upon graduation. And the company, during my second year of business school, did a fundraising round. We raised money from Kleiner Perkins, Bain Capital, and Greylock. So it was like a great group of, of funders. And then kind of collapsed suddenly towards the end of business school. And that was, I mean, I think any entrepreneur who's been through this knows it, very difficult, like quite challenging emotionally. I put a lot into it. Other people put far more into it. Um, and it was, was very challenging to see it go away, and I knew that I loved being an early stage entrepreneur, but I wasn't emotionally ready to do it again. So I I was looking for something. I loved being in New York City. I said I want to be in New York City. I want to be somewhere that where I'm doing something tangible, but not quite as risky. Um, And I found through the Stanford Business School alumni network this company, Bumble and Bumble, that made hair care products. And everyone in business school thought it was hilarious because I was the shittiest dressed, least stylish person at Stanford Business School. Um, And I went to this kind of high fashion company um, and I had a tremendous experience um, and I learned a lot. And it was not it was not even remotely corporate. This is a company that when I was there was still very much run by Michael Gordon, who founded it It was a hairdresser and, and really a brilliant entrepreneur. And the centers of power in this company were the hairdressers and the artists. Um, so it was a fascinating place to be, and I was there for two years, and then I uh, left with my boss to go to a company. My boss from Bumble was named CEO of a company called Jureleek, which is an Australian skincare company. I moved to Sydney for a year and then worked for the company a little while after that before joining Jordan as he was just starting uh, the Mixers.
0: And he actually crashed your couch while you were gone. So uh,
2: He did. He stayed in my apartment when I was in Australia, and when I got back... I had to like. Well, I had to throw in my towels. He's not. He was very. <laughs> so, <laughs> all the quinine, a lot of
1: quinine. Still quinine as as well. So,
0: so, so here you guys are. You know, like coming back together to a certain degree. I mean, obviously at this point, Jordan is in your apartment. You are. You guys are like speaking. You are overseas, but going to Jordan now. I mean, you came out of business school. You were doing your sales and marketing. Can you tell us because it seems that you, to a certain degree, had this idea incubating. Uh-huh. And then, you know, Ben is is coming along as well, you know, because he gets equally excited about it. But, but before that conversation with Ben happened, can you tell us what were the sequence of events all the way to you actually speaking with Ben, yeah. sharing this with Ben, and then both of you saying, screw it, let's do it.
1: Yeah, let me start like a step back. Um, so first of all, I feel like we haven't even got into what the company is. So QMixers, we sell this line or make this line of Uh, premium mixers, you know, tonic water, ginger beer, ginger ale. And the idea is more and more people are buying better gins or whiskeys or vodkas. And now we have uh, uh, mixers of comparable quality and sophistication. So you can make the best gin tonic you've ever had, or the best Moscow mule you've ever had. And the company's Q, Q mixers. And right now it's our stuff is sold at 10,000 bars and restaurants around the country, everything from, you know, all the Four Seasons uh, uh, h- hotels in the country to a bunch of bowling alleys, and retailed at just about every major retailer, Target, Kroger, Old Foods, Walmart, uh, Albertsons, kind of all across the country. So the whole thing started with that kind of breakthrough idea. I used to be a y- bit younger than I am now. And I used to be able to have, you know, five or six gin and tonics on a Tuesday night or drinks on a Tuesday night and be pretty good on a Wednesday morning. And uh, while I was working at Downtown Alliance, uh, I had this great apartment in Brooklyn with a beautiful backyard. And one summer night, I had a bunch of good friends over and we were drinking gin and tonic after gin and tonic. And a couple of drinks in, one of my friends started telling the same stupid story he always tells. And I stopped for a second and realized my teeth were a little sticky. I was like, that's kind of weird. So I picked up the bottle of tonic water. It was like a Schweppes plastic bottle and looked at it. 25 grams of high fructose corn syrup, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. I was like, that's weird. I thought tonic water was some like bitter water thing. Um, Anyway, one of my friends, I guess then girlfriends now, uh, wife and mother as two kids, was drinking a Sprite. She had like a stomachache or something. So I was like, hey, Sarah, can I look at your Sprite for a second? She gave it to me. 25 grams of high fructose corn syrup. Natural artificial flavors, sodium benzoid. I'm like, guys, these are the same thing. One's just green and one's yellow. That's crazy. Uh, being my good friends, they're like, sure. And then we started talking about five other thousand things. But I think... The way I put it is that gin has a real way of clarifying my thinking. I can see exactly what's important in the world after five or six uh, gin drinks. But I was sitting back and, you know, everything was great about the night. It was this warm summer night, best friends in the world there. We had, you know, the Christmas lights up and saw this Tangeray bottle, gorgeous bottle. And I was like thinking in my head that everything's perfect. Doesn't get much better than this. Then I looked over and saw the bottle of tonic water. I was like... What a piece of crap the thing is plastic indented, the labels peeling off, you know looked like it had been designed in nineteen fifty eight uh obviously, we knew what the liquid was, um and I was like, why is there not a better tonic water? You know it's good as this night, everything else is perfect except for this, and I was like, you know what I'm gonna make a better tonic water, so that's where I was. uh long story short, I kind of made it in my kitchen, figured out what tonic water was supposed to be, it was supposed to be this alkaloid or salt from a bark of a tree, low sugar, low carbonate water, uh, ordered a bag of bark on the internet, started mixing it up in my kitchen and basically did that while I was um, working at Downtown Alliance as well as a business school that first year and came up with a prototype. So graduated business school, got Ben uh, to give me his apartment for six months and that if he came back for uh, you know a week or so, I had to clear out, find some other couch to sleep on. I had this prototype that I had made because Barry Nailbuff made me make it to graduate business school. And I basically went door to door in New York City to a bunch of fancy restaurants. Um, and I signed on uh, First Gramsci Tavern, which had won best restaurant in America or something. And they wanted to buy it, uh, my tonic water. And I had to get set up. You know, They asked me who my distributor was. And I was like, what's a distributor? So he said, oh, go get set up with finance. So I did all this paperwork. Uh, by the time I got back uh, home, uh, Milk and Honey called me. They were kind of the grand dom of uh, kind of these modern cocktail bars. They're the ones who basically made fresh fruit juice, uh, you know, classic recipes, like the thing uh, that cocktail places need to do. So he loved it. He knew. Looking at me, I didn't know anything about anything. He said, you know, can you deliver after close tonight? I said, sure. He closed. Uh, I was like, what time? He said, 2.30 in the morning. So I delivered my for, borrowed a car, delivered my first cases at 2.30 in the morning. Got paid cash at the register. About three weeks later, a gin company called me, Plymouth Gin, um, and they were doing an event at Rockefeller Center, and they wanted to do ultimate gin tonics with their gin and my tonic. And I said, sure, what do I need to do and how to get my phone number? Basically, I needed to show up uh, the next Thursday night with 10 cases of tonic water, and I did. And we had a good old time, drank a lot of gin tonics. Uh, at one point, Florence Frabacant, who's the head writer for the dining in section for the New York Times, uh, came by and she loved the tonic water, loved the story. The next morning, got a call from the fact checking to- department of the New York Times that we're going to be featured in the dining in section next week. And I said, Oh, you know, oh my God, and oh my God. I didn't have anything. Basically, got a website up in two days that had like a pre picture and said, For my tonic water, call Jordan. Here's his cell phone. Uh, the article hit, it was really nice. Uh, and I got calls from like 800 places around the world on my cell phone that week. Like literally bars in Japan were calling me on my cell phone. Um, and in retrospect, it makes sense. You know, they had already upgraded to craft beer from, you know, the regular beers. They had all these fine wines. Uh, they had nice spirits and no one had a better mixer. So I uh, got this call. Uh, meanwhile, I only had you know a couple hundred cases. So I said no to just about everybody um, except... Couple of places in New York City and the flagship uh, Whole Foods store in Austin, Texas. They wanted to buy a pallet. So, kids, big advice uh, when you're starting a company: people want to buy stuff from you. Say yes and figure out what it is afterwards. Uh, anyway, figured out what a pallet was. How to get the stuff on a pallet? How to get the stuff down to Texas? Then uh, me and my then girlfriend, uh, wife, and mother of my two kids now went down for a weekend of demos. You know, by day, try my tonic water. By night, um, Tex-Mex food, margaritas, and um, uh, by the time I got back, I was like, I think I have something here. Uh, pretty quickly, sold into the Whole Foods in New York City, where I did something like 28 demos in 27 days, and um, we were more or less off to the races. I think it was at that point that Ben joined me, right? Yeah, you, um, one of my first
2: days was us going to the to to get into Whole Foods. We had to have a distributor, and we did not have a distributor. And Whole Foods hooked us up with a with a small local independent distributor called McMahon's Farms, and that was one of my first days. Jordan and I drove up to uh, negotiate our distribution agreement with McMahon's Farms. So that was that was actually an important moment. We went up and um, we met with them, and that were they were only way into Whole Foods, and they asked us for an exclusive. And it was a New York State exclusive, right, Jordan? And at least, yeah, and we didn't know what to do. We were like, that doesn't sound good, but. We were, like, kind of scared. We had nothing. We had no business. It was our only way to Whole Foods. And this guy said, you know, we need an exclusive to sell your product. And we kind of looked at each other, and we were like, um, no. And he's like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and we signed our first distribution agreement.
0: In this case, too, Ben, I mean, when, when, when you guys were getting started here, yeah. I mean, it was also the, the big, you know, uh, crisis, the big financial crisis, no? So, so tell us about that moment of, of ripping checks. Yeah. I mean, what, what was that like? So you know,
2: I I left my job at Relic to join Jordan. I was like, I think I'll have to take a pay cut. I get it. And like, they took a fifty percent pay cut. And then it was pretty clear that was too much. And then I took a seventy percent pay cut. And then um, we were raising money as the financial crisis hit um, in order to fund the company. And we had a round that was just about set to go, and people sent us checks. And then and then the financial crisis happened, and people called us up and said, "The round's off. Tear up my check." And so we tore up our checks i think this was actually an important evolution in, in us as entrepreneurs because there are various i mean it's the early stages are very challenging and we were out of money and we were supposed to go out of business um and we just decided no you know we're not going to do that <laughs> we're we're just not going to fail we won't let that happen and so jordan and i both gave up our apartments um we cut our pay to zero um we each moved in with our girlfriends and and we later each married our girlfriends and um and uh, they they put up with us and um, funded our life for the next period of time as we slowly built up the business and the economy recovered until we were able to uh, to raise some
0: capital. That's amazing. And 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 how was that moment when you guys got into Dean and Deluca, Jordan? Tell us the story.
1: Oh, that was really early. That was um, okay. even pre Whole Foods. So you know, I launched at um, Grammer's Tavern, milk and honey. Little Branch, which was uh, uh, Milk and Honey's Sister's Cocktails Bar, and then Blue Hill at Stone Barns, like up in Westchester, one of these very first uh, farm-to-table. But I wanted to launch with a retailer as well, Mm -hmm. and uh, clearly called everybody, including Whole Foods, who didn't pick up. But uh, Dean DeLuca was in uh, Soho in Manhattan. It was around the corner from my designer's office. And so one day, coming back from my designer's office, I was like, screw it. Tell about what Dean DeLuca is, or was then. Oh, Dean & DeLuca was like the preeminent specialty food store in America. They're basically the first specialty food store in America, arguably, what is it, early 80s, late 70s? I forget when it started. But they were the first ones who brought in different types of mushrooms or different types of arugula or different endives, whatever. They actually had good stuff as opposed to uh, kind of the mass grocery stores. And so... I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sell, sell in. So I went. Their store or their offices were upstairs of their Soho uh, store. Um, I walked upstairs, asked the secretary, who's the person who buys beverages. And she said, it's so-and-so. He's out. Can you you know, just leave your name or something? And I said, oh, can, I'll just wait. So basically, I waited for a couple hours. Eventually, she went to the bathroom, uh, snuck into his office, put a, my bottle down with a nice little note. Uh, and then told her, eh, you know, I'll come back later or whatever. Uh, anyway, by the time I took the train home, got home, uh, I had an email waiting from the buyer from the buyer saying, "I love your stuff. We'd love to carry the right. the Um So that was our very first uh, retail customer. That's so cool.
0: So Ben, now now going back to you because we were talking about financing just uh, a moment earlier. I mean, can you tell us about like how I mean how you guys have financed the company uh, so far? I mean, it seems that you've had a a couple of investors coming in so so how has it how has it been the yeah. the process of capitalizing the the business?
2: yeah, I mean we did for many years we we were very lean and we were funded with friends and family. We had a small group through a friend of ours actually from summer camp of of New York City kind of hedge fund investors who provided one of our larger earlier rounds which was about five hundred thousand dollars but from two thousand seven up until two thousand and sixteen. We did pretty small friends and family rounds, and we kept the company very, very lean, um, and it's something we were proud of. I mean, we we built the company up to you know over ten million dollars of revenue, with I think we had nine people at the time, um, and we were familiar with you know, talking to other entrepreneurs and funders that, that food and beverage startups kind of had notoriously high cash burn rates, and we were proud of how efficient we were, um, but. In 2014, our biggest competitor a company out of the UK called Fevertree went public. And when they went public, it was all sorts of data. And we looked at it and we saw how they were doing in Europe. And we were like, you know, we've been looking at this the wrong way. We've been saying, hey, isn't this great of us that we're growing efficiently and in a lean fashion? And really what we ought to be saying is look at the massive opportunity. Look how big our opportunity is. How do we how do we go after this in the most aggressive fashion? Um, so. Early two thousand sixteen, we raised our first private equity round, um, led by first beverage venture as a beverage focused investor in Los Angeles. That was eleven million dollars. Um and then in 2019, um, we raised a, a much larger round, a $40 million round, um, led by a, a Paris-based private equity group called Eurasio. Um, and this has given us the capital to to grow. I mean, we we don't make apps, we make uh, physical things, and we have a cash cycle, and we we have to make our stuff before we sell it. So we have working capital needs, but also to put in place really an incredibly talented team. Um, we're very proud of our people. You know, we're investing ahead of our growth with to, to to get the right sales teams, the right finance and operations people, the right marketing people in place to to help us deliver on this opportunity that 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 is in front of us, which we think is absolutely massive, particularly in the U.S. So. So we have raised private equity funds. We've deployed it primarily to build team, um, and also more recently to kind of build awareness out there in the market.
0: So I guess uh, in this regard, you know, Ben, you know, just for the people that are listening to get an idea on on the size of Qmixers, and and Jordan was alluding to it, you know, with the ten thousand, you know, distribution places and things like that. I mean, anything else that you can add, you know, to give the people that are listening an idea on how big Qmixers is today?
2: Yeah, I don't want to disclose revenue. But I mean, the way the way I would think about the way we think about our opportunity is we're competing. There are various premium competitors out there like like our competitor Fevertree. And, and, you know, people can look up and see how well Fevertree is doing in their market cap. But we think of them more strategically as collaborators than competitors. Our competitors are, are Schweppes and Canada Dry. You know, our We look out at our market and all we see is opportunity. We're we're in a world here, in a market in the United States, where the vast majority of spirits purchased are premium and above. The the United States is the most premium spirits market in the world. People are spending big money to get a nice spirit, but they're mixing them with mixers and, and most of the drink is a mixer that are generally of poor quality. Um, we have the least developed premium mixer market in the world. They're still, they're still mixing their very nice spirit with a Schweppes or a Canada Dry, um, And that's changing. It's changing quickly. But still, the relative penetration for us, for Fevertree, is quite low. So we see absolutely massive opportunity to get far, far bigger than we are today. Um, and that growth is going to come at the expense of these mainstream brands. And if you look, I mean, getting a little bit to the question of our relative size, The United States, because the market is so big, the retail environment is pretty highly fragmented. And different retailers are at different stages of embracing this premium mixer trend. So look, early on in 2008, Jordan used to tell everyone, I think that every retail store in the country eventually is going to have a premium mixer tier. They'll have mainstream mixers, but they're also going to have a few few layers of premium products. And no one believed what Jordan was saying except for himself, including me. I didn't really believe that. Um, but today we're in a world where, where just about every every grocer in the country does have a premium mixer tier. And we're moving towards a world where grocers are, are eliminating at least one of the mainstream brand, brands, Schweppes or Canada Dry, and their shelves are going to be mostly premium or private label. And if you look at some of the grocers, the furthest along in adopting premium mixers, you'll see that we, new mixers, um, in a number of them, or our competitor, FeverTree, are the number one mixer brand, already bigger than Schwabs? already bigger than Canada Dry. So we're we're at a meaningful scale, but as we look forward three to five years, it ain't nothing compared to the scale we'll be at, because this world in three to five years in the United States, our market, the mixer market, will look a lot more like the spirits market. It will be dominated by the premium brands, and, and we're determined to be the largest.
0: That's amazing. I'm very glad that, that you mentioned that. So I guess, uh, you know, in that in that regard, you know, because uh, we're here talking about worlds, you know, what the world is going to look like and and what Jordan used to say. So uh, now why don't we get Jordan here to speak? And, and Jordan, you know, just to expand on, on what Ben is saying, imagine if you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision, you know, let's say five years later, I mean, tremendous news. You wake up in a world where the vision of Q-Mixers is fully realized. What does that world look like, Jordan?
1: I get a little cheesy in my approach, but like big picture, it's that everybody's having better drinks. Like that people are actually enjoying their drinks more. Like your first drink your day is arguably the best time of your day. Um, And if we can make people just a little happier and a lot of people are a lot happier, like that's pretty awesome. Um, In terms of what that actually means, it means you go to a bar or restaurant and every time you order a gin and tonic or vodka soda or whiskey ginger, you get a nice whiskey and a nice ginger or a nice vodka and a nice soda. And every time you go to somebody's house and somebody offers you a drink, and you say I'll have a gin and tonic. Uh, if that person was going to give you a Tangeray or a Hendrix or a Bombay Sapphire, they will use a premium mixer alongside of that. In terms of dollars, you know, two thirds, seventy percent of all mixer dollars are premium but i don't that's not the way i think about it i actually think about it in the, the 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 drinks that people are actually going to enjoy that people are going to actually be a lot happier with each and every drink that they have in 3 to 5 years and maybe they are today
0: that's amazing putting the customer first i love that so i guess one question that i have for you guys is and this is the typical question that i always ask the guests that come on the show is if i put you in a time machine and i put you jordan you know back to business school i put you ben you know, in Australia or wherever you were, you know, traveling around the world. And you have the opportunity of going back in time, have, having a sit down with your younger self and giving yourself based on all this incredible right. I mean, we're talking about year. I mean, we're talking since 2007, 2008 that you guys have been involved here. And you have the opportunity of bringing all that knowledge that you've acquired through the ups, through the downs and being able to give yourself your younger self one piece of business advice before embarking in the q mixers journey what would that be and why and maybe we start with yeah. you ben
2: yeah i know the answer to that i think about it all the time it's have more confidence in yourself move faster you know early on i was always looking for expertise and for you know the the, the someone who knew how this was done or how this ought to be Um, and then I realized that that expertise doesn't exist. We're we're creating the rules every day. And so if I were doing it again, and I had the ability of kind of, you know, even if I lost all the specific knowledge about our industry, our products, our manufacturing process, all that stuff, and I just retained one piece of knowledge, would just be have confidence in yourself and your vision and move quickly and aggressively, that would be far and away the most important thing.
0: I love it. And what about you, Jordan? What would you tell your younger self? So, Assuming that
1: I got Ben to tell that to my younger self, (laughs) I would say, be sure to celebrate the victories. Like there, anybody who starts a company knows there are a lot of high highs and there are a lot of low lows. Um, And we, I think, have done a very good job of just keeping going. And uh, I think we've done a good job of celebrating kind of every achievement. But I think if we did even more of that, I think that would help because just that celebration after you've done a good thing just keeps you keeps you going in that next valley that you're inevitably gonna go through.
0: You know, something that is amazing that uh, that I definitely get, you know, from 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 now, you know, like having this time together and and also, you know, like having, you know, other people listening to to your guys' story. I mean, you've been, you know, together since two thousand and seven, you know, really pushing this. I mean, you've known each other since the summer camp days. Uh, so I guess, you know, what what piece of advice would you give the people that are listening perhaps on co-founder dynamics? Because when it, when it comes to a business marriage, you know, you guys you know, know a thing or two, right? Because of this relationship that you guys have. So I guess, what would you say, Jordan, to the people that are listening? So I
1: would say it. So I am happily married to a wonderful wife with two kids. Um, and I think about it the same oh. business partnership in the same way I think about uh, a relationship. It only makes sense going through this Kind of the challenges of, of having a child and all those associated uh, stresses to do with a person uh, that you love and adore. Um, and that makes everything more satisfying and kind of equips you to deal with the inevitable challenges uh, a lot better to be doing this with somebody, to be able to kind of celebrate, anyway, again, those victories and really, you know, mourn those losses, to be doing it with somebody else. Makes it all so much more worthwhile, and therefore, kind of likely to succeed because you'll stay stay in there a lot longer.
0: Absolutely, Ben. What would you say to expand on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's I don't know how generalizable our experience is because we were best friends before we did this, right? But it's 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 been our partnership has been absolutely essential to our success because we compete against, you know, we're we're little guys competing against Coke. And Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, and we compete against some of the biggest, most powerful companies in the world. And it is not easy, um, despite having a vastly better product. And so just knowing that you've got someone there who you absolutely trust through everything, to me, has been essential. I don't, I couldn't have done it on my own. There's no way.
0: That's amazing. So, guys, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? QMixers is our website, QMixers.com.
1: We have Instagram, QMixers, but the real answer is Jordan or Ben at QMixers.com. You know, one of the advantages started a company, you get a good, pretty good email address. Uh, <laughs> we got email too, so uh, happy to hear from
0: anybody. Amazing. Well, Jordan and Ben, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. It's a deal. Thank you. Thanks for having us. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic.